Welcome to Hit It, the Water Skier Magazine podcast, presented by USA Water Ski and Wake Sports, where we catch up each month with current stars, rising stars, and legends from the past from USA Water Ski and Wake Sports and its nine sport disciplines. This episode is brought to you by Visit Central Florida, the water ski capital of the world. I'm your host, Tyler Boyd. Welcome back, everyone, to the Hit It Podcast. I am very honored and excited to bring you a Hall of Fame guest here today, and that guest is Ronnie Barton Bischoff. That's right, Ronnie joins me in the virtual studio. She has an incredible list of accomplishments on the water, from being a former women's world overall record holder, eight-time world team champion, six-time U.S. Open champion, two-time Masters champion, and incredibly She held the number one ranking in the world in women's overall for 11 years. In this episode, we journey back through Ronnie's beginnings and the motivation that made her one of the best water ski athletes of all time. With the 63rd Masters Water Ski Tournament approaching this month, it was really fun to hear stories from Ronnie about her time at the Masters and in her current role as events coordinator for Nautique as she prepares for the Masters Water Ski Tournament at Callaway Gardens in Pine Mountain, Georgia, May 26th through 28th. Having said that, this is an episode that you're not going to want to miss. So sit back and relax and enjoy this episode with Ronnie Barton Bischoff. Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Hit It podcast. It is not every day you get a Hall of Fame athlete into the virtual studio to have an interview. And who I have with me today is a very special guest, Ronnie Barton Bischoff. Welcome to the Hit It podcast. Thank you, Tyler. I can't tell you how excited I am to get to be a part of this. I've been watching you do this, um, and I'm it's I'm just th- thrilled and honored that I uh, that I can participate today. Well, so excited to have you on the podcast. I've admired you for many of years. Being a junior athlete, I remember watching you go through the ranks and achieve so many things. And it's you know, as I prepare for these things, Ronnie, I, t- I told you offline, I'm I'm looking at your resume. And although I knew that you won and accomplished a ton of things, I was, again, just blown away at your career. And today on the podcast, I want to talk about your career, but I also want to talk about what you're currently doing now, Uh, not only with Nautique, but the way you're coaching uh, kids that we're going to see at the Junior Masters this month, as this is going to be launched in May. So there's a lot of ground to cover, and I'm super, super excited. But first of all, just bring us up to speed what you've been doing. Well, let's see. I I officially retired. I guess it's been about 10 years already, which sounds like a really long time. Um, I have two boys. One is 14 and one is 11. So after I had my first son, I went right back to skiing and number two slowed me down a little more. Um, I've always really worked closely with Nautique, even when I was competing. And so as I got to kind of my last final years in the sport, um, it it just made sense. It seemed like it would work to transition over. Um, I had actually worked on the master's committee for many years as an athlete rep. So I had a lot of ideas about what went into the tournament, what the event coordinator did behind the scene. Um, you know, and, and kind of a little bit about what it took. So when Brian Sullivan approached me, I guess it's been about eight years already, um, ago about doing the job. I, I thought it was a a great transition for me. Um, it lets me stay heavily involved in the sport at the highest level. And I mean, 
if you're going to run one tournament in the world, why wouldn't you want to run the best one there is? So it just made sense. And, you know, I have to say, Tyler, I think Nautique also knew that there was not a good chance of getting me to go sit at a desk job all day, every day. And being the event coordinator gives me a lot of flexibility um, and I can continue with coaching. I can help with PD&D and product development and kind of all those things that help make me happy. Um, I like to have my hands in a lot of different things. And this job just suits me perfect because it gives me the time and the av availability to be a mom, to be a wife, to coach to ski, to work out, to run tournaments, and to do, you know, all the things that I love to do. So I'm really blessed. I think that Nautique recognized what would make me happy and then also tried to find a position for me that would let me stay on the water, let me stay in the boats, let me stay at tournaments. Um, because at the end of the day, if I'm happy, I'm I'm going to do better work too. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Sounds like a perfect position for you and running the, the best tournament on earth, the U.S. Masters. And, you know, that's only a couple of weeks away. I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about your career. I, I spoke to you a little bit about this offline um, and it comes up all the time. I mean, we talk about hot summer nights on this podcast. We talk about kind of those years in which um, a lot of our audience fell in love with the sport because it was broadcast and, and we'd pull it up on our TVs. The, 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 the earliest memory that I have of you skiing is junior girls. I think it's 1989 Okahili park. The nationals is being broadcast. You come off the jump and I remember it like pauses and you turn back and the camera like pauses that frame and you have the cage hockey helmet on jumping and then you know we kind of follow your career throughout the 90s as your rise to fame but there has always been a push there's always been a drive about you that you've always wanted to be the best and I just wanted to hear it from you like how it got started and what it was like on that journey oh for sure well there are a lot of stories but um I'll you know a few that stand out to me I I was born and raised in California so I grew up skiing in the Canyon Lake Ski Club, um, and it's a big club. There was a lot of members. You had to, they had a, a little starting list down at the dock, and you had to go write your name on the list and wait in line for your turn. But I really credit the ski club for kind of instilling the push in me. And believe it or not, we had club tournaments every month. Once a month, we had a ski club tournament all winter long dry suit, 40 degree water, we had club tournaments. And the tournaments were ability based, um, which is interesting to me. So you had classes, you know, you, you started out in the 14 to 18 mile an hour class, you ran 18, you moved up, you moved up. Well, as I hit like 10 or 11 years old, they had the superstars class. And back then that was like the hot dog men three skiers. So you can imagine where little Ronnie wanted to end up was in the superstars class. And, and that group of gentlemen that competed at that level, they were also the, the dads that were driving the tournaments, scoring the tournaments. You know, they were really good friends with my dad. They were the ones putting all the time into my skiing. And I really chased sort of in those early years, that advancement every year, um, the club did a, a banquet. So there was a lot of motivation from the club, from the club members to, to 
kind of grow my grow my desire to improve. And I was rewarded for that. And I think that that model um, of encouragement worked really well for me. And then when I was 13, my dad brought me to Groveland, Florida. Um, and, and you might remember this tournament. It was called the Superstars. And Dave and Cindy Benzel ran the tournament in Groveland, Florida. And it was kind of like the best of the best um, kids. And this particular year at the Superstars, they were also having the Junior World Team Trials. So I was one year too young. So maybe I was 12. And I, my dad brought me, I got to compete in the superstars, but I got to watch the junior team trials, Scott Ellis, JD Wiswald, April Coble, Christy Overton. And I think he did that to kind of show me kind of what the next step was, was going from Canyon Lake to what does going to like the big leagues look like? And I had done some nationals, um, but you know, junior worlds is like a whole nother step up from, from even nationals, like giving me a taste of what these kids were doing to make international competition. And I left the superstars and I mean, I was fired up. And so the very next year um, I made my first U.S. junior team Wow. And, 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 and competed there all through juniors, um, junior worlds and, and Pan Am championships and, and, uh, you know, pretty much everything under the sun on the junior level at that point. So I think just that introduction of, of seeing those, those kids that had put in all the time, all the work, all the effort. And I, I, I saw what it took. I saw them out there competing for those, you know, four small little spots. Sure. The junior worlds really, really inspired me. And so then from there, I, I actually, this kind of ties into the masters, but this year is the 30th junior masters. So it's a bit of a milestone, but the first year they had the junior masters would have been my last year in juniors. Okay. So I was like, Oh no, I'm not doing the junior masters. I want to qualify for the open. Well, and that was one of my questions today. If you had ever skied in the junior masters, yeah, but no. it sounds like you, you opted to go up. Yeah. So Jack, okay. Jack Travers hosted the, you know, the infamous last chance qualifier. And obviously anything can happen, but I was probably a shoe in to, to go to junior masters and win junior masters. But again, like that push, I, I want to keep moving up. I want to progress. I'd already won junior worlds. I'd, I'd won all the Pan Ams. I was like, I, I want to go chase, you know, Dina wow. and Camille. And so I opted out of junior masters. I went to the last chance qualifier and I qualified. So the first year they had junior masters, I skied my first elite masters. I was still in high school. That That's really interesting because that tells me a lot about kind of what you viewed tournaments as in the sense of, you know, it, drive is different for different athletes. You know, sometimes it's just about medal count, sometimes about progression. But you probably go to junior masters that year if you did, and you probably take the top of the podium. But instead, you say, well, it's not really about that. I want to go up there into the big leagues. And I may not make the top of the podium, but that's not what this is about. It's about getting better. Was that kind of the mentality? Yeah, I think, you know, my parents, um, I never felt a lot of pressure from them to to win. You know, I think they wanted me to be the best I could be. 
And going back to that superstar story at Canyon Lake Ski Club, I mean, I I guess it just was instilled with me to to push to be the best I could be, not necessarily to to win. And um, I really appreciate that from my parents um, because they just constantly supported me sort of in my chase to become the best. But I think stretching yourself, challenging yourself, but pushing yourself always to climbing to the next level. Um, I think that, that, that came from them. It had to have, because I don't know how you get that on your own as a kid. Um, and you know, Jack and Leilani were big supporters of me with that too. Like, I think it would have been really easy for Jack to say, Hey, no, do junior masters, you know, stay down, take the wins. But I think they knew where I wanted to go ultimately. And I think the only way I was going to get there was was to not settle and to keep to keep pushing up. So for me, for my personality, I think that mindset worked and the people around me also supported that mindset. Well, one of the things in water skiing, and we talk about slalom, trick and jump on this podcast, and we talk, you know, here and there about overall, but really, you're, you're one of the most accomplished overall skiers that we've had on the podcast, your whole career centered around overall, you know, I'm taking a look at your resume. I mean, for 11 years, you were ranked number one in the world and overall on the rankings list. I mean, the consistency over a decade long of arguably one of the hardest things to do in sports, uh, not be just consistent in one or two events, but all three. Tell us about that journey, because that's a special thing in and of itself and how to train for it. Yeah, it's definitely difficult. I mean, I, I always said, I want to, I want to be on the podium in all three events. And it, it was, it was a little harder to win. You know, it was a little harder to win because there was always a specialist there. But I just said, I don't want a weak event. I don't want one event to be weak. And I, I train hard. I mean, I skied five, six sets every day. I put the time in and, you know, um, at one point in my career, I was like, I want to hit all the eights. I want to run 38. I want to trick eight and I want to jump 180. And that that was like a big goal back then to, to be able to say you could do those three things. Probably still a goal now, really. I mean, striving to that to that level in all three events is difficult. And even today, there's only a few, you know, less than probably a handful of people that are really solid in all three events. And that was always my goal. It was just like, I don't, I don't want to be credited for having one really weak event. I just, I just want to get them as even as I can. And I, I really evened out the, the training and, and put in the time, I guess that I don't know why that was a goal. It just was yeah. like something that I wanted to do. Yeah. So, so tell us about that first masters. How was it? I mean, you're, you're there. There's no prep time as far as being a junior because the junior master hadn't been introduced yet. So like, here you are center stage. What was that experience like? Yeah. You know, I mean, Camille Duval was there. Dina had just retired. You know, Andy Mapple was there. I mean, it really was. Wade Cox was there. You know, the Shaylanders were there. The Larson twins were there. I mean, when you go back and look at the who's who of skiing, they were on that dock with me. And man, you can't replace that motivation. You know, you can't sure. replace that. And and I think today, you know, when we get the juniors on the dock with the pros, that inspiration and that 
kind of that getting to have that little bit of connectivity is huge. It's a big motivator. So yeah, I mean, I just stood there kind of awestruck the whole weekend. I remember being on center stage at the pavilion with Camille going like, I'm standing on the dock with Camille Duval right now. Like, what am I doing? You know, and same with Britt and Tom Larson. I mean, they sure. were just amazing. And so I, I, you know, I, I don't really remember how I skied. I think I skied fine, but I can tell you that the next year I won first overall title, my second wow. masters. So something there, I think just that, that motivation, again, that example, seeing what they put into it, seeing the focus, seeing how they came off the dock and delivered. It obviously clicked because I, you know, I continued to put in the work and when I won that second masters, I was a senior in high school. So I actually probably wow. could have done junior masters that year too. Wow. I did not know that. So you were still in high school when you took the overall and elite masters. Just, yeah. So who, what year are we talking around there? I'm so bad with this, Tyler. It's got to be 94, 94. 94. So you're up there. You're okay. So the year before you're on the dock, like, oh man. You know, like the the people around me, this is the who's who. And I'm out yeah. here with the who's who. Now you're standing there. And those pictures of the 90s, I remember on those overall trophies, you would stand with the cup, I believe, next to pavilion. whoever the man. Yeah, with the and, yeah. and who what, was it? Oh. Had to be like Jared or Patrice. Who was I, the? I won one with Patrice and the oh, next man. one with Jared. So same. Wow. Like, how do you be get better than Patrice and Jarrett? You know, like <laughs> so here I am, this little high schooler. And it's funny, I remember uh Britt Larson braided my hair so I could stand on the pavilion and hold up the the overall cup. Oh, and, that Bo, is... and Bo Calloway was there. Bo Calloway was the one that presented me um with the cup and I held the cup over my head. It, yeah, senior in high school. Very, very cool. Yeah. You know, and 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 it's just to for our audience to give them a glimpse of the overall and how important that was during that particular time. We just had Jimmy Seamers on the podcast. He said, "You know, I got to ski against Jarrett, but I always wanted to ski against Patrice, but he he retired." And I even said, "I'll have a private tournament just to go against you," but they never could make it happen. So the fact that you know you're standing up there along with Jarrett and Patrice, it's like wow. This is this is unbelievable. So, so do you win them? Does it go back to back, or how do you how do you win those overalls over the years? Those I think two. I won in ninety four and ninety six. I'm so bad with my resume. Yeah. I'm sorry. I think I won ninety four, ninety no. six. I think there was a year break in between. Maybe Patrice won those two because when I went back, I think Patrice was done when I ended up winning with Jarrett. And funny story. The year I won with Jarrett, I am on the um, on the pavilion and also at the banquet on the stage. And Dorian Llewellyn was born in May. He was a couple weeks old. And I had been training with Craig and Jarrett some at that time. And we're holding Dorian Llewellyn, who's like <laughs> three weeks old. And now, you know, look at Dorian yeah. Llewellyn. It's like, I mean, this stuff, you can't make this stuff up, right? So oh, sure. Um, I used to call Dorian Llewellyn superstar and I've got a picture of me holding him at the masters the year I won when he's a couple weeks old. 
with with Jared. So very cool. It's fun, so, fun memories, you know. Well, yeah, and, and especially when you look now, here we are, 2023, ramping up for the world tournament again, and Dorian's right in the thick of it with Joel Poland. I mean, overall's in good hands. During this time, when you're winning these masters and overall, who is your main competition out there? So it was deep. It was a lot deeper than, like you said, maybe it is now. So I had Elena Milikova. Okay. From Russia. Remember that name? Yep. Angela Andriopoulou from Greece. Marina Mosti from Italy. Sarah Green. Well, Sarah Gaudisson at the time from England. I mean, the list goes on and on. There was like 10 of us probably that that could battle it out. I mean, to, uh, Emma Shears was sure. still doing overall at that time. And her slalom and jump were so incredibly strong yeah. that she made her a strong overall skier. You know, Tony Neville was there. She wasn't tricking anymore, but slalom and jump. So it was, it was deep. April Coble, you know, from the U S April Coble, Karen, true love. It was, there was. A, so, so the, like the field is, thing. yeah, the overall. depth is so deep. Like, you know, it's not like you're going to go out and miss your first pass on tricks and still win overall. Like no, you're going to have to ski perfect. You had to ski to the top of your game to win because it it wasn't two or three fighting for the overall was all of them. And, and, and at that time, Masters was centered more around overall. And yes, the individual specialists were there, but it was really, the tournament was really more centered around overall at that time in the 90s. I mean, by the time I got later in my career, not so much, but those... <laughs> Those beginning years for me were very overall based. So I wanted to ask you about that too, because there was a shift there at early 2000s to ski fly. Yes. Did oh, you did. did you ski fly? Oh, yes. I ski flew at the Masters. In fact, okay. probably my worst recorded crash of my entire jump career. So this particular year with the way the wind was blowing, they had to spin the ramp. So we had to jump towards the slalom start dock, if you remember that. So not only were we ski flying, but we were whip style ski flying because we're on that short north end and Les Todd was driving and I took the whip and I got a little too late, but I was not going to let go and huge, huge huge crash but um but yeah i i did do the era of ski flying of course scott ellis you know put in a lot of time with me bruce and tony neville i think i'd have to look but i think i'm still the u.s national record holder for ski fly for women okay i'm pretty sure all right i'm gonna I'm look that sure. up there you go that, 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 that might be my big claim to fame now tyler no it is it, it, it ski flies come up a couple of times on the podcast of course our first ever recorded podcast was with the rocket man so we talked about ski fly there and i think i said on that podcast i was there uh as a junior athlete in 2003 and i had never seen ski fly before and i remember less in that boat just i mean the engine was so powerful you would sit on the pavilion and it's just like rumbling through your blood and skin. And you're like, these people are really going to go off the jump. I mean, it was incredible. So, um, wow, I didn't I did not know about that part of your career. So you go all the way through that. So are you balancing traditional jump along with ski fly and the other two events? Because now you kind of have a hybrid style of how to do overall going on. 
Yes, I was doing both. I was traditionally okay. jumping and ski flying, you know, at the same time. So we would just switch back and forth. I mean, you kind of got used to it because it was just, it was different timing with the longer rope and the faster speed. Um, I will admittedly say on the podcast that the girls were allowed to go 41 miles an hour. I only went, ever went 39. But you got to remember, I weighed like a buck 10, right? So like there was no, I, Ronnie wasn't really signing up for 41 with the boat. So I kept the speed at 39. So maybe you could accuse me of being a little bit of a chicken. <laughs> no, not at all. Not anyone who ski flies, not at all. And, well, and the thing is, masters especially. Well, yeah. So is you know, obviously a, a larger body of water. It's it's the the mysterious waters of Robin Lake. You never know exactly what's going to happen. But the fact we're talking about 39 to 41 miles an hour, if people who never had the opportunity to watch ski fly, and I never ski fly, but I was told that when you got up to those types of speeds, just even behind the boat and in your glide. I mean, the tail of the ski is really not even sitting in the water. So you're almost up, pushed up onto your front toe. Yeah. So I, I, I was, what was the factor of the, the speed, like 39 to 41? Was it just like the think, way you would stand on your ski? You were like, no, I'm not going to do that. Or was yeah, it just, just so much faster? I just at 41, I just couldn't get my skis settled in the water to edge through the ramp. Okay. Um, and some of the girls did go 41. That was our max speed. But I could just settle in and hold an edge through the base of the ramp better at 39. So I was honestly going farther at 39 than I was at 41 because I could just settle that little bit more. Sure. So, yeah. So I, I admittedly stayed on the lower end of the speed spectrum there. That Yeah. Wow. Incredible. Well, you touched on this a little bit. Like back in those days... As we lead up to the Masters, there was one event that if you weren't already qualified for the Masters, it was the last chance qualifier. In recent years, we've gone to the Masters qualifying series. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that and how athletes are going to be gearing up in the month of May for the Masters to try to qualify? Of course. Well, so the shift kind of started with COVID just because that year there was not a lot of tournaments worldwide. There were some countries that hadn't gotten to compete at all. So we couldn't really use a, a strong series of high level professional events to qualify athletes in. So we created the Masters Qualifying Series to give skiers from all over the world the opportunity to come and compete and qualify in. And really, I mean, the mission statement of the masters is it always has been to win on the waters of the world. And, you know, you got to think about it this year in, in the elite event, we're only taking the best eight in the world. Well, it's, there's arguably different ways to get the best eight, but if you win, when all your competitors are standing on the dock competing against you for the spot, you win. It's different than somebody skiing at their record tournament in their country and you skiing at your record tournament in your country and comparing scores. I mean, when you really put people on the dock and send them out to compete for the spot, the, the you know, the champion shines through. And so what we've noticed with the Masters Qualifying Series is that we've had um, insane results. I mean, it's, it, it, particularly at the junior level. I mean, last year, the four boys that got in all ran personal bests. 
against each other to get those spots into the tournament. So you're, you're bringing out the best in the athlete to get them there. So this year we're doing a little bit of a hybrid because obviously in 2022, we were back to more of a traditional, you know, um, season since COVID we had a lot of high level events. So the master's committee targeted certain tournaments that were pre-qualifiers for the masters. And if you won those, you punched your ticket straight into the master. So defending masters champion, California pro-am champion, the Botas champion, um, junior worlds punched their ticket straight to junior masters. So those key high level events where, where athletes are winning on the waters of the world where their competitors are there went straight in. Now, this month, this month coming up in May, we're going to have two qualifiers, one at Drew Ross's, one at Jack Travers, and it's the same thing. You really got to show up and win to get those last few spots into the Masters, and it's the same for pros and juniors. We expect the same. We want our juniors stepping up and winning on the waters of the world, not sending in a score, you know, that they did at their home site. So yeah, if, and that's in, that's interesting too because the tournaments that you referenced, I guess all of those tournaments they happened in 2022, so they carry over, right? Yes. And and here you've got two tournaments leading up to the Masters, which really can be a huge advantage for athletes who progress in the off season, right? Like they may have just not been there last year, just from their talent level, and then worked really really hard, and now here we go. There could be some new names and faces just like that. Exactly. And historically, if you look over the years at the qualify at the last chance qualifier, especially even at the elite level, really at the elite level, the, the skiers that get in at the last chance qualifiers have all gone and made the finals at the masters because wow. to your point, they're skiing hot. They're the best that they can be. And they're on fire right? Going into the masters. It's not that they skied good last July, won a tournament and now they're showing up in May. So I really feel like, you know, yes. Is it nice as an athlete to be pre-qualified and not have to worry about punching your ticket? Sure. But I really feel like it's an advantage to be skiing good and to go earn your spot because honestly, it's probably harder to get in in the last chance qualifiers than it is to show up at the dock at the masters sure. and just do your job. And, and, you know, also to your point, you know, and, and I did this many times in my career injury, you know, the year I did my ACL, I couldn't compete. I didn't have scores show up at the last chance qualifier, get your spot into the masters and you show up and you ski great. You know, they, they do the same thing with the women who sit out a year and have a baby. They got to work really hard, get back in shape, show up at the qualifier, earn their spot, punch their ticket back in. So there, there's really a lot of value um, for the athlete skiing well going into the last chance qualifiers. And, and to your point with the juniors, somebody who maybe was mid-pack, maybe their 10th or 12th in the world last year as a 13, 14, 15-year-old, they can have an amazing off season, work their tail off and pick up a pass and slalom, 20 feet jump, couple thousand points and tricks, and they may be your winner this year. So I think it's motivating all the way around. I think it's a big positive for the sport on many levels. And personally, I like watching, I mean, I'm a fan of this. I love watching the underdog show up at, at, at the qualifying series, punch their ticket in and then go you know, whoop up on everybody at the Masters. It's pretty fun to watch. 
Yeah, you know, some of my greatest memories of going to the Masters and watching and announcing have been that person who is able to punch their ticket in is usually the first one off the dock. Yeah. And 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 I, and there's been time and time again, you know, uh just that person sets this ridiculous pace in in the preliminary rounds to be like, okay, yeah, here's what I did. Now all you veterans come chase me. <laughs> it's amazing. And it, it makes the tournament more exciting for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ronnie, going into the 63rd Masters, talk to us a little bit about what people would expect. You know, Friday, the junior masters, two rounds, a preliminary round and a final. And then Saturday is the preliminary round. You got to punch your ticket into the final round, which is on Sunday. But um Callaway Gardens, Pine Mountain, Georgia. Talk to us about it. Okay, for sure. Well, of course, the first thing you want to do is watch all the action, you know, at the Masters. It's going to be really exciting this year. Every year I say I can't, the level can't go any higher. And these guys show up and they certainly take the the level of the skiing up every year. So it's going to be amazing. You know, Callaway Gardens for me, um, you know, I've been going I don't, I did over 20 masters. So I've been going there forever. I feel like since I was born, right. But not quite that long, but it has a special place for me with my family too. I mean, Lincoln, my 14 year old was with me on the dock when he was less than a year old at my first masters back after having him. And it's just an amazing weekend for your family. The Callaway gardens has the aqua Island, which is the inflatable park. I mean, the kids love that there's putt putt golf. There's the zip lines. You know, there's bike paths. Your family wants to rent a rent bikes and go do an amazing bike ride to see the beautiful gardens. There's the butterfly museum. The beaches are amazing. Of course, we want to thank GM Marine. They're going to put on the outstanding fireworks show that we can. And it is outstanding. It's yes. unreal. It's unreal. So Saturday night at dark, you know, General Motors is going to put on the fireworks show for us. The food, the food vendors. I mean, there's just so much to enjoy there on the water and off the water. And and I encourage, you know, the people that come to go see what Callaway has to offer. Pine Mountain has some cool things, too. I mean, we cannot talk about about Masters without talking about the drive-through zoo, right? The drive-through zoo. You get in this rental car with no windows black and white painted like a zebra put your family in buy your bag of food and drive through the zoo and feed these animals i mean you got to record it i i actually have a good story for you on this so shannon starling who is wwa world wakeboard association one year his kids are in college now but his son was maybe three or four and he was like ronnie chris come on come with us to the to the drive-through zoo we're driving through the zoo. Is his son's like three or four? He's literally on the floor going, "I'm gonna die! I'm gonna die!" Because <laughs> these huge, you know, deer, oxen, bison are like sticking their heads in your window. Their tongues are like ten inches long, and they're licking you in the car trying to get the food. I mean, you can't not go to Pine Mountain and do the drive-through zoo. And these are the memories that you're gonna create with your with your friends, your family. Um, the other athletes, I mean, all the skiers go, you'll probably see a skier in the drive-through yeah. zoo. You know, you got to go do it. Well, what's interesting too about Masters is there are some diehard fans that have been going to the Masters. Like that is a marked weekend on their calendar, the last weekend in May, that they are going to be headed to Pine Mountain to go to Callaway. They they come with old Masters t-shirts, sure. you know, dating way back. They'll 
And you, I mean, the, the knowledge of what people know about water skiing, just from the general population that shows up is pretty unreal. I mean, I'll go down uh, and just walk along the beaches and we'll be, you know, swimming or something. And I'll just strike up a conversation. I just can't even believe what just, you know, hey, yeah, we go out and ski uh, once or twice a year, but we always come here. And then they start bringing up stories of like what happened in the 80s. I mean, the knowledge is incredible there. But one of the other cool things about the Masters that I absolutely love, I mean, we talked a lot about overall in three event on this podcast, but is the wakeboarding. Because a lot of times, you know, if we're only at like three event site, we're not seeing wakeboarding. But the these beautiful Nautique boats with these wakes, you get so close to them because you can get out into the water and watch the athletes ride by. So that is one of my favorite things about the Masters because there is a blend between slalom trick and jump and wakeboarding. For sure. I think, it, you know, it it breaks up the day, right? Because you can go to a traditional water ski tournament and you got to, you know, you're going to watch five hours of slalom and three hours of tricks and five hours of jump. What I love about the Masters is it is only the best, literally the best eight skiers out there duking it out, the best eight wakeboarders duking it out. And the pace is fast, right? You you watch a little slalom, then you watch a little trick, then you watch a little jump, then you watch a little wakeboard, and it keeps you on the edge of your seat. It entertains you, and it just, it really does a good job highlighting our sport. And I'll tell you, the wakeboard criteria is 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 no less loose than the water ski criteria. I mean, they've got an insanely deep field. And again, the best 10 men, pro men will be there, the best eight pro women, and then six junior men, six junior women. And these guys throw down, I mean, we are notorious again, like the skiing, the the athletes have landed the double backflip for the first time ever at the Masters. Right. Or they've landed, you know, a 1080 for the first time at the masters. So this, the same thing happens with the wakeboarding. They, they raise their level of performance because of the venue, because of the, the, the mystique. And the, I think the history of the tournament just makes it feel more important. I mean, you walk onto the dock and they're playing stars on the water. If you can walk onto the pavilion and hear stars on the water and not get nervous, even if you're not skiing, you're nervous. Right? Like, <laughs> you're not wakeboarding, but you're not competing. I think it's just the nostalgia, the history, the fact of knowing who was there before you, what it takes to be there. And I mean, Tyler, for being honest, anytime you have to qualify for something to get to go, automatically you've got controversy, automatically you've got hype automatically you've got prestige because everybody wants to get to go and as soon as you say no sorry not everybody gets to go the level raises and i think there's really no other tournament in the world that can do that you know yeah, I, no I, I just think that it's it's impossible but then you do that and the athletes they take those nerves and that anxiety and that history and that nostalgia and they just kick it up a notch and they do things there that have never been done before anywhere else. And, and then we get to, you know, we get to, and the fans, like you said, get to sit back and, and enjoy the show. So I, I just think it's the whole package. And, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit biased, but we're creating the boats that are allowing these athletes to continue to perform. We have the best coaches there. So it's just, it's just a, a recipe for overall success. 
Yes, could not agree more. And in the words of my really good friend, Desbert Kennedy, action, 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 drama, drama, drama. And that's what it's all about in that weekend. So much going on. So, Ronnie, you're doing incredible things at Nautique. You're doing incredible things all over the sport, really. But talk to us specifically about coaching. Because you've been really involved with coaching some of these junior athletes that we're going to see again this year at the Junior Masters. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I When I started skiing with Jock and Leilani, um, going back to those years of superstars and junior worlds, you know, they run a ski school. And I got involved running the ski school, learning to drive, learning to coach. And I just had a big passion for it. And Sometimes I feel like in my mind, like, oh, I've just retired and I've just started coaching, but I actually took, I was looking at this the other day. I took the U.S. junior team to Chile for the junior worlds, like in 2004. So I'm like, we've been doing this like all these years. And it's just kind of been like a side hobby. I'm, I've, I'm really committed to the juniors and I will say I've been blessed to have like a whole slew of children who are not my children, maybe my children from another mother who have lived with us, who have trained with us, who have let me kind of pour into them and teach them what I know. And um, it's just a big passion for me. And I'm really lucky that Nautique has continued to let me spend the hours a day that they let me spend in the boat while also being the event coordinator for them. And Um, yeah, I mean, looking back over the years, um, I've got a lot of big names that I've gotten to coach and, and been blessed to work with. So a few, I guess a few fun stories, maybe one good one. So when I skied, when I competed, I feel like I just skied all the time. It was just work, 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 ski, 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 more sets, more sets, more sets. And, and it paid off for me. It worked. I also suffered you know, quite a few big injuries. I had some setbacks. I maybe wasn't always as prepared for the right tournaments at the right time. And you can look back and reflect on these things as you get older, like, oh, hey, well, maybe if I was doing 25 tournaments in the year, I maybe should have highlighted the three or four that were the most important as I got older Mm. and set my training up for that. I didn't do that. And I and I remember one specific time later in my career, I was jumping a lot with Freddy Krueger. At the end of one of my jump sets, he was like, Ronnie, you can't just ski more to get better. You need a plan, like you need goals. You need to, to set specific things that need to change that you need to address for you to get better. Because I did, everybody gets to a point where they get kind of stuck, right? And as right. I started getting stuck, I didn't want to be stuck anymore. I wanted to figure out how to get unstuck and to keep improving. And my work ethic was just work more, just Mm. scheme more, just do it more. But he really kind of was like, that's not always going to work. And then, you know, Wade Cox also taught me a lot about like cycle training and, and what training to peak at certain times started to look like. So that as I did get older and as my career started to shift, I was able to show up and deliver at certain tournaments when it mattered um, more. And so a lot of these things that I took from my experience from training with, I mean, I I was so lucky. I skied with all the best skiers in the world ahead of me. And to, to get to have that opportunity, I don't know how I got so lucky, but I take that knowledge now and I try 
to really instill that in my kids. So what I kind of pride myself on is not really just coaching them, but getting them tournament prepared so that when they show up and they're standing on the dock, they have all the confidence in the world because confidence comes from preparation, right? And having them believe in my training program, how I think you should train. I'm not going to give away all my secrets on the podcast, right? You have to come ski with me if you want to learn them. There you but, go. That's a good plug. <laughs> but you know, but you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta have a plan. You have to train with a purpose and you have to be prepared at the right times. And I think that's really what's making me a strong coach now is sharing those things that I learned with my students, keeping them healthy, keeping them injury free. I'm I'm really big on cross training. I mean, I I had Carl Percival trained me a lot to the end of my career, weight training, strength training, Olympic training. I wish I would have started that young. I have an amazing trainer now that's working with all my kids and it makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to, to do that. And, and honestly, Tyler, it's, kind of as exciting for me as it is for them. I mean, I know I'm just a teeny tiny part in their success, but I kind of thrive off like showing up, standing on the dock and watching my kid show up and win, you know? I mean, sure. it gives me, when you're a competitor, you have that in you your whole life. That doesn't go away. And so running the masters, trying to show up and run the best tournament of the year, have my kids skiing the best at all the tournaments that they go to. I think that keeps me a little sane. It helps fulfill that little competitive, you know, juju that I have inside of me that maybe I can't always tap into as much anymore as I get older. I have my kids doing their sports, you know, admittedly, I'm a huge Orange Theory buff. People probably are like, oh, I know why you go to Orange Theory because you can compete, but you got to have an outlet for that as you get older. It doesn't go away inside you. And so, you know, selfishly, coaching also allows me to kind of enjoy and 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 feel proud of some of that competitiveness that I still have inside me. Yeah, and, and just to drill down on that point, that is a really good point. And obviously, you are at such a high level for such a long time. And then at some point, you go down the road and you say, well, it's just, it might be time for me to move to a different aspect of my life, you know, not as as a professional skier, but doing other things to be able to shift your energy from skiing five, six times a day into other areas. I think what you're telling us is like, it's kind of that same mentality is but it's through a different outlet. And I know that can be a difficult transition. Tell us about your transition during that particular time. And you know, it sounds like you're really happy where you're at right now, you're having a lot of fun. But I'm sure it took some work to to shift it from, okay, it's not so much about Ronnie skiing anymore. It's how am I going to do this, uh, whether it's for the kids that I'm coaching, whether it's for my family. Uh, talk to us about that transition. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely tough. I think, uh, you know, so many years it being, you know, as an athlete, it's about you. When do you eat? When do you train? When do you sleep? The first thing that'll cure you of that is having a baby, right? So, um you know, when Lincoln was born, I went back to skiing and he was a really easy baby, but it didn't take me long to see that as he was a toddler, like he had things he liked to do. And, you know, he started getting interested, you know, in, in, in his things. 
And all of a sudden it didn't feel so good to show up at the lake and, and be like, Hey, you're sitting in the boat. You're going with mom to the lake. And I'm sure that's different for different families. I just quickly started to see that like he had a lot of things that he liked to do. And all of a sudden I wanted him to be able to do the things that he liked to do. And then when Ryder came along, I was like, okay, two boys deep, like, this isn't about me. I, I just don't have the time anymore. I've just never been someone that can do something halfway. So I was starting to struggle with like, I'm not skiing enough to feel good about my skiing. You know, we talk about prep confidence comes from preparation. And all of a sudden my preparation wasn't there. I wasn't feeling as confident, but I also wasn't willing to give up those things with my kids to be prepared. And that's when I started realizing like, hey, this is probably nature's way of telling me that it's time to start letting this, this go. And the coaching and the Nautique offer came. And those were things that took a lot less time than training. It's not just training, but it's imagine every weekend you're gone at a tournament. Sure. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a lifelong 24 hour day commitment to be a high end athlete. I, I I do think that having the Nautique offer to do the masters, and I do think that having the coaching helped in the early years because right away I was feeling fulfilled another way. I was also feeling fulfilled watching watching my boys. And now I'm like a full-on addict in my kids' sport. I'm a full-on addict in my students' training. I want the masters to be the best. And and I think, you know, I've gotten to the point where like that shift just kind of happened over time. But it's definitely difficult. And, you know, sadly, we've seen lots of high-end athletes struggle with that. You know, I guess I'm just thankful that maybe I felt okay kind of letting go of the skiing when my mom duties kind of called me to do that. And I don't know if everyone's that lucky, but I just really got committed into what my kids wanted to do. You know, my kids are great little skiers, but they haven't chosen to be high-end tournament skiers. But I, I say this, you know, my parents supported me in what I wanted to do. And I want to support them in what they want to do. And they ski, they still love to ski. I just don't think that's their first passion, you know? And so I want to give them the same thing in their first passion that I was given the opportunities that I was given, because I think there's, there's so much to be said for that. And you're like, you're just success and happiness as a person, as an adult. So really they're they're at the end of the day, my kids, my family, my husband, Chris, they're my motivators. You know, my husband's a saint. He lets me run around like a chicken with my head cut off all the time, you know, and he just like whatever to make it all happen. He does. Um, and so I'm lucky to have that support. My kids are the same. I mean, they're on the sidelines at the big tournaments cheering my students on. And so they're as invested in what the kids who train with me do are as they are in their own sport. And we just kind of build one big, one big, happy, competitive family in whatever sport it is you want to do. That is so cool. I love that perspective. Well, I was going to ask you about skiing now. Like, what does it look like? It, do you just like you're, you're coaching, coaching, and then you're like, ah, I think I want to go to the garage and pull out a ski. Like, <laughs> how do you decide to ski? Well, I am not a weekend Wally. It frustrates me to no end to take random ski rides. So when I get like periods of time, chunks of time where I can ski, I'll start skiing. 
But somehow, as the kids have gotten older, those chunks of time get less and less. So will I occasionally get out there and take a random ski ride? Yes. But I just don't like doing that. I, it's like once I do one ride, I'm I'm like sucked right back in. I'm like, oh, well, I could do this and I got to do this and I got to do this. So when there's chunks of time, I'll say weeks at a time where I can ski, I'll ski. If it's like a random Tuesday afternoon and I could maybe sneak in a ski ride, I hardly ever do it. I hardly ever do it. I'm really diligent about the gym. Like I said, I love my orange theory, but I can go there at 5 a.m. and I don't need anyone to do it. Yeah. Like I got to stop the lake. I got to stop the job. I got to stop the kids to get out there and do it. And I just sadly, I just don't make the time to do yeah. that. Well, and and this and this question, and it's more of a statement to finish out, kind of when you look back on your career and everything that you're even doing now, um, and when you do ski, how would you finish the sentence, I water ski because? I think I would say I water ski because I'm addicted to the never ending challenge. You know, I mean, there's always another buoy. There's always another trick. There's always another foot. There's always a way to figure out how to do it better, faster, easier. As a coach, I love trying to figure out the fastest, easiest, cleanest, best way to teach my kids. Um, so I'm always tinkering with that. I'm, I am, I will say I am a huge student of the sport. Mm. I watch all the webcasts. I watch all the tournament. My my 11-year-old rider, he watches, he watched every single trick skier at the Swiss tournament this last weekend. I mean, we're we're fans of the sport. I water ski because I'm a fan of the sport. I water ski because I love the sport. I'm a student of the sport. And I just I just love water skiing. I don't know. I was just, it was just born in my blood and and I think I'll probably just die doing the same thing, but <laughs> it may, it makes me happy, Tyler. And, you know, it's not an easy sport. No, it's really not. No. It's, 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 it's cutthroat. It's challenging. It's emotionally tough. It's physically tough. It's mentally tough. You know, you fly all over the world with all different conditions, different drivers, different boats, different types of water. It's not for the faint at heart. That's for sure. But I think that, I'm, and this maybe ties back to that first question you asked me, you know, Canyon Lake Ski Club, superstar, yeah. going to the masters and not the junior masters. It's that, that never ending chase. And I've obviously got something inside me that just doesn't want to let it go. That's an excellent answer. I love that answer. Well, Ronnie, if people want to reach out to you and find you, I want to give you a handoff of where they can find you. Maybe they want to come ski with you and then you can give them your secrets that you won't tell us on the podcast. There you go. Well, well, first I'll say everybody needs to go to the master's website. So that's www.masterswaterski.com. The schedule of events for the 2023 masters is there. The athletes that are qualifying are going there. Everything you need to know about the event is there. So go there first, then you can come to the masters and see me there. Um, and we can talk and, um, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to an amazing event this year. I'm really excited that we're hosting the 30th Junior Masters this year. I mean, those these are huge milestones, right? We're 63 years old, 30 Junior Masters. We're not slowing down. Nautique's just continuing to support me to make this thing bigger and better every year. And I can't wait to see where we take it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's going to be unbelievable. I hope everybody on the podcast who's ever considered going or those who haven't considered going go this year. Um, it is going to be unbelievable. 
and you're not going to want to miss it or regret it. So Ronnie Barton Bishop, thank you so much for joining the Hit It podcast. We've got to have you back someday in the future. I would love to be back. I have so many fun things to share. And I just, Tyler, I can't thank you enough. Tell you what it means to me to get honored and recognized and get to be a part of this because it's, it's, uh, it me, it really means a lot to me. So thank you so much. Well, thank you again, Ronnie. And to all those out there in the audience, we'll be seeing you next time. Signing off. Thanks again for listening and come back for future episodes of the Hit It podcast as we catch up with current stars and legends of the sport. Thanks again to our sponsor, Visit Central Florida. And don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate this podcast. We'll see you next time.